Well, I'm going to do something a little different today. I don't know if you were catching up with uh, what Pastor Street had put on Facebook, but just a real quick introduction, and then I'm going to actually switch it up here. But uh, in the doctoral ministry program that I'm in, you are required to preach three sermons from Third John, which has nothing to do with Psalms. And uh, I thought, wow, I need to do this, and I've got to put my best foot forward here. But in the long run, I thought, you know what, um, it's going to take more time. So I'm going to preach four times in a row today and then three other times, which uh, is going to allow me to do that. But I wasn't ready, so we're going to focus on Christmas today. And we're going to focus on something that I think you're going to be really um, encouraged by this morning. And that is, we're going to look at Joseph. And I want to do that. I'm talking about Joseph of Jesus, his father. And I want to do that with you. But let me introduce this whole thing for you. If you take a typical nativity scene, figurines, that you might have at your house and blow life back into the dust-ridden stories that you always associate with them, sometimes Joseph is forgotten. You might speak of the magi and the shepherds or the people that were at home in Bethlehem. But we need to sit for a moment and think about, as an audience, what it is and what was happening there and everybody who was affected. It's at this time of the year that we really can't rely anymore on just childhood stories of Christmas. We have to listen to the greatest stories as witnesses as they were witnesses. No longer do tales about Bethlehem seem like beautiful folklore. Now they play out before us like divine history. The intention behind everything that you see in Matthew and Luke as they record the birth of our Savior is much more than them just wanting to make sure that we have the facts accurate. They wrote because they wanted to make sure that we saw the story of the wise men and the shepherds and the villagers as our story too. We want to look at it in such a way where we can relate to exactly what was happening there because there's purpose in that. And nowhere does this come home more to us than the message that we're going to look at this Lord's Day. Now, I could have studied uh, for you uh, the Magi from Persia, could have given you a glimpse into God's great wisdom. We could have studied the people of Bethlehem who could give us empathy for the Jews' great hope that was coming. We could have talked about the shepherds in the field who gave this supernatural light, and they knew that the shepherd, the true lamb, also was coming. But nothing is really as glorious, in my opinion, in this story as are the parents in the scene, the parents The story of Joseph and Mary is timeless. The miracle of a virgin birth, the astonishment of angelic proclamations, the providential arrangement of Roman census that drew these two unsuspecting Nazarenes towards a village in Bethlehem. They have so intertwined themselves so seamlessly together in the narrative that the only conclusion left is that God has arrived in this manger. But we, have you ever thought through what probably is the most inexplicable, the, the most indescribable experience that a man and a woman could ever dream of, have you ever thought about what it would be like to have seen the nativity through the eyes of the parents of God? Have you ever wondered what it would have been like to hold in your arms the Savior of your own soul? Have you ever thought, as the song says, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Only one couple has ever experienced that reality in all of history, all of mankind. And this morning, we're going to meet both of them with a focus on one. 
And as we meet them, we're going to begin to see that these two unsuspecting young people were about to walk right into the four of the most unexpected, earth-shattering events that you could ever find your way into, into the life of anyone. We're going to see how they were destined, if you will, by God to come in contact with these four humanly unexpected, divinely orchestrated events that have ever graced the pages of Scripture. And to do that, we have to travel with both of these parents of Jesus. But specifically, for our purposes today, we're going to focus on seeing these events mainly through the eyes of Joseph. Mary gets a lot of attention this time of year, and she should. That's for sure. It was so funny. My son had a birthday yesterday, and we were all having fun at uh, Buka and eating. And Lori says, it's so funny. It's his birthday, but I did all the work. You know? <laughs> and, and that was true. That was very true. So we usually focus a lot on the mother, of course, of, of the Lord. But I want to focus today on the father. Uh, and I want to call this message the forgotten man of Christmas. The forgotten man of Christmas. Or to be more accurate, the forgotten father of Christmas, if you will. Not in a biological sense, but in a relational sense. You know, Joseph really is the epitome of the adoption father. Joseph really is the epitome of someone who understood more, no one understood more of what it was like to take a son that didn't come from his own loins. No one understood more than what he was to love as a father, the son that God grafted into his family. But before we think through that, let's do this. Let's go to Matthew 1. Go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I want to look at just one verse to kind of set this up. We'll be in Matthew and in Luke this morning. But Matthew 1, 18. And listen to this very simple but very profound verse that Matthew records for us. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. I think in this one verse, we have one of the most well-known and possibly one of those contested verses concerning the parents of Jesus Christ. They were, as this simple verse just implies, about to be launched into this adventure of a lifetime. They were going to have the Messiah of God named Jesus was going to be born into the home of a couple that had not yet been together intimately by means that only the Holy Spirit could explain. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, and I like to say that because I think sometimes we just read and move on and check off our little box to make sure we did our Bible reading for the day. If we were honest with ourselves, we would admit that it is simply impossible to fully understand what have must have transpired inside the minds of these two common parents as they began to comprehend what was happening to them. We know because of what historians tell us that Nazareth, the village they came from, was a small town, about 400 people. They were committed to the biblical education of their youth. We know that synagogues existed there. Uh, We know that the scriptures were both in Hebrew and Greek, available to the normal Jew by that time. And yet we cannot be certain as to exactly what it is that they understood about the scripture concerning what was happening to them in this nativity scene. Even before that, I say first of all, because throughout the gospels, we come into contact with phrases that speak of the wonder that they experienced concerning the birth of Jesus. 
For instance, in the Gospel of Luke, we read in chapter 2, verse 19, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The truth that she received were of such magnitude, of such profundity, that she had to think over and over again about the implications of what it was that was happening. Later on, we read in Luke 2.33, And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him, speaking about Jesus. This child that was going to come in was so unique, it was hard to put their arms around. Later on, we read again in Luke 2.51, His mother treasured all these things in her heart. These were more than just realizations. I hope you understand. These were confirmations for the couple. These were confirmations that God was indeed doing what he said he would do. These are confirmations that they were, what they were living through was real. Secondly, I want to draw your attention to the fact that each and every time in the Old Testament scriptures are mentioned in relationship to the prophecies that were being fulfilled in Jesus' birth, that they, never do they attempt to imply that either Mary or Joseph understood the prophecies of what was happening around them, they, nor did they even anticipate these prophecies. In other words, we never get the sense that either Mary or Joseph understood what was happening to them, at least in terms of the fulfillment of messianic events. We never get the sense that this young couple just ran to the scriptures and like opened up Micah or Isaiah or any other prophet and then looked at each other with affirming smiles like, yes, that's indeed what is happening to us. We're never directly led to believe that Joseph or Mary ever fully understood what was happening to them at any time. As we shall see this morning, the prophecy about the child being named Emmanuel, the prophecy concerning the virgin birth, the prophecy concerning the flight to Egypt, and even the prophecy concerning the birth taking place in Bethlehem, all of these prophecies are presented in the biblical text as being something that Mary and Joseph were seemingly unaware of. In fact, they never told, we are never told, that either of these parents ever attempted to anticipate these fulfillments. They weren't attempting to manipulate the events. They, they weren't adding two and two together and then positioning themselves in such a way that they might assist these prophecies to take place. In fact, just the opposite seems to be true. Everything in this story just seems to happen to them. Just happen to them. They are as shocked as we are. They are as unaware of the biblical history behind what is happening to them as would be normal for a regular reader who's reading it for the first time. They are as shocked as we are, the only difference being that they believed what was happening, that they had what it seems to be an unmovable faith in the God of Israel. They are portrayed as believing people who had a strong sense of God, that he had promised a Messiah, and that he was to come, and that he was to be expected, and that they understood that God was real, and that angels were real, and the supernatural world was real. They don't fight what's happening to them. They don't argue with each other. They don't resist these divine directives placed before them. They accept what God is doing is he's doing his work through them, and they're going to obey whatever it is that he does. In fact, every aspect of their story is written in such a way to clearly show that they were as bewildered and amazed and thrown by the events that were happening to them as we are. Never are they portrayed saying, I knew this would happen. I'm not surprised this is exactly what I expected. Never, never. Rather, they ponder, this is key, they ponder and are amazed and are mistaken in how they interpret their life events 
and they are corrected over and over again by the angels and redirected by dreams, all the while marveling what God is doing in the midst of them. So, though they may seem to have only a basic understanding of the true nature of what's happening to them, they have a profound trust in God. They have a profound trust in the God who is doing the acting among them. In fact, they don't run to each other and say, oh, I get this. This is how this piece of puzzle fits this piece. And why is this happening? Which would be very comforting. They are like eager just to follow whatever it is that the Lord is bringing before them with wonder and grace, trying to accept the implications. They were expecting a Messiah to come, yes, that was going to be a human king. They believed he was to be the one who was going to be endowed by God with special gifts and powers, but they could have never understood all of the ramifications and events that would bring Messiah King to earth, nor how believing God concerning these things would be played out in their life. So understand, to understand these dear parents, we need to first look at them before all the miraculous things took place, back to the time when they were just people. Just people on the earth, people like every other people, young, Jewish, living in pre-first century context during what they call the intertestamental period. They were living in a beautiful land, a land that was so rich that some considered it to be one of the loveliest spots in Galilee. It was situated in a southeast slope of a hollow pear-shaped basin and descends gradually from an elevated plateau. You have a hill 500 feet above the town that provides a truly amazing kind of panoramic view. Nazareth were a place where a synagogue was revered, and Nazareth was a place where the scriptures were revered. This is a lovely community where Joseph first saw Mary. Now, if you're still tracking with me, what comes up often regarding Joseph and Mary's relationship is, is whether or not they fell in love with each other and then decided to get married or if their relationship had been just solely connected and arranged by their parents. And as romantic as we'd like to be, and want to make fact is it was just common for marriages, I think you know this, just for them to be arranged because it was clearly understood that to marry any individual was to marry their family. It's still true today. And marriage is a bigger issue than one's own fulfillment of happiness. There were many other considerations to be thought through and many other arrangements made, many financial and material concerns. So being in love or falling in love wasn't exactly at the forefront of most marriages of that day. That being said, however, however, Scripture does give us examples there were at least some relationships in Israel's past where love played a mighty role even before marriage. Most notably is the case of Jacob and Rachel. Genesis 29, 20 says, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Wow, I bet he put that in a bottle and on a little piece of paper and gave it to her as a gift. I mean, that was pretty great stuff. So to assume that Joseph and Mary had no love for each other before marriage, even if it was arranged by his parents, isn't exactly provable. You can't prove that. They definitely knew each other. They grew up with each other in the same town. They were involved with the same people. And if I was to indulge my sanctified imagination here, I would propose the idea that it was Joseph that was first in love with Mary. And I say that because according to tradition of betrothal, which was a binding contract more serious than an engagement, but not as intimate as marriage, the girl was usually around the age of 12 or 12 and a half. And so when she entered into the betrothal arrangement, uh, she was very young. The man, however, was usually around the age of 18 or older. 
Therefore, Joseph was most likely at least five years older than his bride. And so Joseph was at least a teenager or at least a young man. And Mary was just likely a preteen. So to us today, I know that seems completely odd to think of our daughters as being ready for marriage at that age. But to people of Jesus' day, that was completely normal. Completely normal. In fact, to add to the surrealness of that idea, most of the time these betrothals were allowed between members of the same family. I know, I know. In in an effort to try to keep inheritances, especially in the land, the family would become necessary for men and women to sometimes marry cousins without any sense of inappropriateness at, at all. And yet, this is not the case of Mary and Joseph. Most likely, it was Joseph, a more mature man, who first saw the young maiden and desired her to be his bride. Most likely, it was he, like Jacob, who saw Mary and wanted her, hoped that she would marry him and make him the happiest man on earth. At least, that's how I like to see it. Uh, But regardless, they were destined for each other. As a side note, in the intertestamental time, it was very common for marital love to develop. This is really important. It was very common for marital love to develop between the two betrothed people over time. Though the teens involved might not have known each other, though they may not have any feelings at all for marriage, it was known and found to be common that each time they would learn to love each other over time. So even if the tradition of marriage by arrangement was the mode for Joseph and Mary, they both understood that like Isaac and Rebekah before them, that they would be given the opportunity to learn to love over time. They would learn to care for each other, to be, encourage each other, to look out for the best interest of each other, and to protect the marriage that God had granted them. Now, true, parents had chosen them for each other, but they understood through the providential outworking of God's sovereignty that it had been God that had created their marriage. It was God that had allowed this arrangement, and it was God who would bless what he had ordained. That would be a very important reality for them to cling to. Because the most miraculous gift in human history would also be the catalyst for the most severe testing of a relationship in human history. But as we shall see, they decided to follow God together on the road towards Bethlehem. Now, something else is important before our story fully unfolds, and that is the act of being betrothed to each other had a ceremony that accompanied it. It wasn't a wedding ceremony with all the pomp and circumstance that we see today, but the betrothal ceremony was still very intimate, very personal, exchange of symbols. And after this ceremony, they would be called husband and wife, even though they hadn't consummated the relationship. That's Matthew 1.19. If one of them died before the wedding, they would be considered a widow because the contract was that binding. Very vital for people to understand, I think, even these, for these two un, young folks to be understood by us. On the day, the families of the bride and groom would meet. Some others present and serve as witnesses. The young man would give the young woman either a gold ring or some article of value or simply a document in which she promised to marry. And then he would say to her, See by this ring or this token or whatever it was that thou art set apart for me according to the law of Moses and of Israel. And then the man would take a year, I think this is fascinating, the man would take a year or so to prepare his bride a home. So then sending out invitations for the wedding to happen, and after which she would move in, live with him, because he had proven that he was able to provide for his new wife a comfortable home and the necessities of life. Speaking of being able to provide, what was Joseph's job? 
Well, everyone knows he was a carpenter. He worked with wood and nails. Now, in the Greek, the word tekton, which has been traditionally translated carpenter, but it's really actually a very general word, technical word. It could cover makers of objects or various materials, even builders. Uh, Justin Martyr in 165 AD wrote that Jesus made yokes and plows, and there are similar references all throughout the same thing. Other scholars have said that uh, tecton could equally mean a high-skilled craftsman in wood or precious metal. But the point I'm trying to make is Joseph was ready to marry. He was ready to marry. He was prepared to meet Mary, to marry Mary, (laughs) and he had a profession. He had parental permission. He was ready to his life to begin. He was prepared as any young man could be. But listen to this. Nobody could be prepared for what happened. Nobody. Nobody in the history of the world could be prepared for what happened to this man as he enters into this betrothal. So I want to show those four unexpected events, these four earth-shattering events, as a way to get to know this couple, and specifically, as you're going to see, the forgotten man of Christmas. And I'm going to do it in a very abbreviated way. I've got about a half an hour to do this. I think I can. Uh, and to the various details. And I'm going to do this just so you hopefully can grasp a wider context um, and know what it must have been to have the weight of the world on the shoulders of Joseph. Now, if you're taking notes, we might call this first ground-shaking event, number one, an unexpected departure. If you're taking notes, just as kind of like a scene in a film, an unexpected departure. So out of nowhere, his young betrothed wife comes to him and says, I need to leave. I need to get away. I must visit my cousin, Elizabeth. Now, follow me here. Follow me here. That was not the norm in any stretch of the imagination during that time. You just didn't go to your betrothed uh, husband and say, I'm gone. Elizabeth, as the Bible says, was advanced in years and lived in the hill country in the city of Judea, of Judah, which means a city surrounding Jerusalem some 70 miles away. For for Mary to announce, as she most certainly did through the scriptures or silent about it, that she was going to be going would be a very dangerous thing and a very unexpected proposal. I'll bring you there in a second, but young girls don't travel alone, right? Can you imagine 12-year-old girl traveling a preteen 70 miles to go see her cousin by herself? That's bizarre. That was inexplicable. Maybe she wanted to go get her counsel. Maybe she had cold feet. Maybe she needed some time to clear her head, make preparations. But regardless, it is impossible to think that before she left, she didn't come to Joseph and drop this very unexpected bomb at his feet. Something had happened. Something had clearly happened. Something had clearly motivated Mary to want to leave Nazareth, and there was no way that Joseph could have ever imagined why. If you go to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, I want to show you what even made it worse. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 56. And what made it worse, it says this, And Mary stayed with her about three months and then return to her home. Do you see that? So, so try to wrap your arms around this. For three months, she was away from her home, town, probably that she had rarely traveled away from, if it, if it ever, away from her father, away from her husband, her mother, and her friends. For three months, out of nowhere, Mary announces her departure, and then she vanishes off the face of the earth. Mary, who seemed like the most normal girl in the world, 
Mary, who was the lover of God, faithful daughter to her parents, devout, devout student of Scripture, Mary, the betrothed one, just gets up and leaves. This was the first of four shocking, ground-shaking events that shook this young couple's world. Now, if you're in Luke 1, let's look at verse 26 here. Look at verse 26, again, the account. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph at the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. So here's, here's a thought. We begin to think this to uncover what happened. This innocent girl and why she left Nazareth in a hurry is because she was entertained by an angel. She was entertained by an angel, as the book of Hebrews would have said it, and her world was about to never be the same. Let me continue to read to verse 39. And the angel said to her, Mary, you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great, and will he be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Verse 34, but Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? When the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Verse 39, Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city called Judah. Now are you tracking with me? Okay, what happened here? Mary had not told Joseph anything. It doesn't say that. She's just completely silent on the thing and immediately she bolts. There was only one issue in Mary's mind at the time, and that was intent on seeing Elizabeth for the confirmation of this old woman that would be able, as Gabriel had said, to conceive a child. Because if she can conceive a child, of course, we're talking about John the Baptist, then other things as well would be true. Mary's unexpected departure came from a very unexpected visit from heaven. She just couldn't tell Joseph yet. She just couldn't speak of such an incredible, glorious things. You know, I'll be, yeah, how do you explain that? How do you explain the visitation of an angel telling you you're going to bear the Son of God and then try to break that down for him? She just left. But I want to point something out to you. Something very interesting to me. Though a visitation from an angel was clearly seen, believed, understood, the greatest issue that came into Mary's mind was the issue of conception. How can this be? She wasn't questioning the supernatural. She wasn't questioning the visitation of an angel. She was just saying, how can this be? I know that you're the angel of the Most High God standing before me, and I believe in supernatural realities and possibilities of events, but since I have never loved a man in this way, what I need you to help me with, because I can't seem to grasp it, is how is God going to allow me, a virgin, to conceive his Christ? To be sure, it's a fair question. 
the very fair question, she most likely was stunned and still reeling in amazement by the fact that this thing had happened in the first case. So we're trying to grasp the idea of conception in human terms by the Spirit of God was too much to handle. But let me add, in some ways, I believe also tells us that Mary was unfamiliar with what we would be understood or to understand as the virgin birth. It doesn't seem as she was understood the idea that the Messiah was going to be born to a virgin. She was willing to accept the truth. She was resolved to submit herself to whatever path that the angel might tell her to go, but she didn't understand these things would ever happen. All she knew was this. If this is true, then Elizabeth will be pregnant. I must run to her to see if it's true. None of this did she offer to Joseph as an explanation of her actions. And then three, are you with me? Three torturous months, Mary is apart from Joseph. And then when she returns, and she does, she brings with her what we might be called the second unexpected event, if you're taking notes. Not only did we have an unexpected departure, but now we have the unexpected discovery. The unexpected discovery. Go back to Matthew with me, chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. And look what it says there. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. She was found to be with child. You know what that means? That means when she returned to Joseph after three months, she brings with her a tummy. In other words, she's showing. Three months, she was expecting a baby. This is very hard. This is very hard to grasp. Think of Joseph. On the surface, it must have seemed from Joseph's perspective that Mary had like rushed off to Elizabeth's side and when she was gone, she had an affair. That's what it would seem like. Three months. I mean, all women are slightly different on this point, but it's very common for young women to be showing after three months. And since she was found to be that way, it must have been very apparent. Betrayal is never easy to accept. Ever. But betrayal, especially in a small town where everybody would talk and talk, that's exceptionally hard. This is when your world starts spinning. This is when you start to question everything from Joseph's perspective. Remember, Joseph's a common man. He's a common man with what he believes to be a common future. He has extended himself to this young woman who I believe he loved, who he saw as a pure and godly and lovely young woman. And this thing to happen makes you question everything. It makes you question everything. How could this happen, God? Now, place yourself in that situation for a moment. He comes into the room where they're allowed to be together alone, and he sees her for the first time after three months with a tummy, and perhaps even weeks after she returned, and his stomach sinks, and he starts to question, and he puts together this horrible scenario in his mind, which you would do, and he asks her, what have you done? What have you done, Mary? What have you done? What have you done to us? And then this sweet young girl looks into his eyes and says, I never cheated on you. I was never unfaithful. I never slept with another man. Please believe me. It was the Spirit of God himself who impregnated me. Now that's a moment. (laughs) Joseph must have thought she lost her cotton-picking mind. He must have thought that all of the guilt and shame and hypocrisy of her life had catapulted her into some kind of religious delusion. Clearly, Mary, when she defended her purity, clearly she wasn't indifferent about it. It was if I'm emotional 
empathetic, desperately pleading, if you will, for Joseph to believe her, I would imagine. She's trying. The more she wept and pleaded to make him believe that God had conceived a baby with her was probably more bizarre than he could even imagine. There are times in people's lives when the one they love the most seems as if, it seems sometimes as if you've never really known them at all. And this surely was true. In verse 19 of chapter 1 of Matthew, it says, again of Joseph, her husband. So even though they were only betrothed, a righteous man not wanting to disgrace her, he plans on sending her away. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, that's an interesting reaction. And that tells me, I believe, that he began to have compassion on her. He went from shock and rage to heartbreak and compassion because according to everything he saw and heard when Mary had basically a break with reality. Think about it. That her guilt and shame had so paralyzed her that she began to allow the messianic fever that was ran rampant in the minds of young women in Israel to make her think that God had made her pregnant with the Messiah without a man. Her story must have been so unbelievable in her delivery of it that Joseph must have slowly begun to believe that, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. This must be like a first century form of schizophrenia. This, 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 she was having a, relu- a, del- a religious delusion of grandeur. She knew that Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24, Scripture would have considered Mary guilty of a criminal breach of the law of betrothal and that prescribed death as the penalty, even though it was normally not carried out, so that she feigned being pregnant by God. She didn't want to die. So Joseph must have been crushed in his heart, decided to send her away in secret so no one would bring shame upon this poor, delusional, young little girl. At least that was his plan until the next unexpected event takes place. Which brings us to the third unexpected earth-shattering event that could ever find its way into your life. We go from the unexpected departure to the unexpected delivery and now the unexpected dream. The unexpected dream. So, exhausted and reeling with deep wells of emotional pain, Joseph falls into a deep sleep and as he sleeps, like all people, he dreams. But this night... He dreams a dream that is unexpected. An angel of God is allowed to appear to him in a dream and shatters his world once again. And we see this in Matthew 1, verse 20 through 25. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord before, through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. This is a game changer. This changes everything. 
Mary had spoken the truth. Mary was not delusional. Mary was not lying. God was indeed coming into the world through this precious virgin wife. And this holy child would be named Jesus by Joseph. For he was acting as the father during his stay on earth. You see what I'm saying? It took a dream for, from God to make this a certainty to him. In fact, if it hadn't been for that direct intervention by God through a dream, there would have certainly been no earthly reason that Joseph would ever have believed Mary. Ever. Unless it was divine revelation. But it had to happen. It had to happen because it would be essential for Joseph to believe every word of his bride-to-be. It would be essential for what was about to happen to them would demand absolute surety in the purposes of God at every single juncture. And I want to point out something here that you might not have thought of before. When God wants to move, when God wants to move Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew, he always does it through dreams. I want you to think about this. These aren't your typical kind of REM kind of dreams. These are divinely implanted messages that come from heaven in the form of a dream. And this is the first of four dreams that come to Joseph during this time. If you're taking notes, Matthew 2.13, after the Magi have departed from Bethlehem, we read that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Matthew 2.19, after the massacre of the innocent two-year-old baby boys that Herod has done, and Herod has died, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt to tell him to bring the child back to Israel. Then in Matthew 2.22, once Joseph came to Judea, he feared that he was still unsafe because Herod's son was now reigning over the land. And so we read, being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. So Joseph, when Joseph was named by his parents, I am almost certain they had no idea of how ironic it would be to name their son after the famous interpreter of dreams, the Old Testament son of Jacob, Joseph. But God knew. Joseph, the father of Jesus, was a dreamer too. And you know, it's interesting because we we never hear a word. Listen to this. This is going to blow your mind. Maybe you have thought of it. Maybe you haven't. We've never hear a word come out of the mouth of Joseph in all of the New Testament accounts of his life. He never speaks one single word. And I know some wives are thinking, typical. (laughs) But, but, But... he, he never speaks a word. But one thing we do know and we see about Joseph, it's how he acts. This is cool. He moves. He travels. He leads his family. Every single time God commands him to do something, he does it. He is a man of action. And I think sometimes that godly men wish that God still moved them through dreams like he did in the days of Scripture. Sometimes, even today, a man can be so unsure as exactly what the next step will be for his family that even though he has the revealed word of God and can be led by the scripture, he just prays and prays and prays that God would just come to him in the night and tell him when to move and where to go so he could be absolutely certain that he was following the plan of God and his will for his family. But you know what? Dreams are not the only way that God moves a man. Sometimes, instead of sending his angels to appear before men in dreams, he sends circumstances. He sends circumstances to appear before men through providence. What do I mean by that? Even Joseph, whom God moved four times in action through dreams, didn't always use dreams to move him to do so. God didn't always use dreams for Joseph to do his will. Sometimes, 
He used circumstances. Sometimes he used providence. Sometimes he even used, get this, decrees. This brings us to our fourth and final most unexpected earth-shattering event that would ever find its way into the life of Joseph. That being we move from an unexpected departure, an unexpected discovery, an unexpected dream to now an unexpected decree. An unexpected decree. And we're going to see this. We're going to go quickly. The Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Look at verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 7. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 7. Now, it happened in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Cornelius was a governor of Syria, and everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. This is the Legacy Standard Bible. Now here's the scene. Here's the scene. Mary returns from her trip to see Elizabeth. She has become impregnated with the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit. Joseph believes her story because of an angelic visitation that he received in a dream, and now six months go by. Six months go by. Joseph had stood in the path of great resistance in spite of all the ridicule, think about it, and the mocking that surely must have occurred while he remained with Mary in Nazareth. We know that because the mocking from the time to time, the Gospels, we see snide remarks concerning our Lord, referring to his illegitimacy, like an illegitimate birth, John 8.41 is an example. So look at the worst case scenario. Think of the worst case scenario. Mary had an affair while away with visiting Elizabeth, returns to Joseph pregnant with someone else's child. Second worst scenario, Joseph slept with her before they were married during the betrothal, and now they're living in shame. Either way you slice it, it's bad. Regardless, no one would have thought in a million years the truth that Mary bore the Christ child, nor would anyone believe such a story even if they knew it. So there they were, six months, living in some degree of misguided shame before the people that they grew up with and loved. For six months, they were looked down upon. For six months, they were ridiculed and dismissed as living in sin, though they were walking in the most incredible degree of faith and integrity. Yet Joseph, this is my point, never left Nazareth. He could have left. He could have packed their belongings and moved away to another village where they wouldn't have been known, but he didn't do that. Perhaps this is a testimony to the strength of their integrity and reputation to those that knew them and they just believed them. Perhaps the immediate family just shielded them for all the sneers uh, well enough that so Joseph and Mary never felt attacked. But that would be hard to imagine. His work was in Nazareth. He could have easily taken up his craft maybe anywhere else But he stayed. The fact that he stayed, can you tell, is fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me. I say that because knowing what he knew about the fact that Mary was pregnant with the Messiah, he must have been tempted to move to Bethlehem because he knew that's where they had to go. 
He knew the scripture. He must have been tempted to find a way to work his way to Bethlehem, to arrange a work interview, to visit a friend, something that could have ordered the events to get him to that small village. Surely he understood Micah 5.2 had been declared 750 years prior that the Messiah, the great shepherd of the people of God, would have to be born in Bethlehem. Surely he understood that this would mean that he would have to find a way to arrive there just as the baby was being born. Surely that would have to be racing through his mind. But the fascinating thing about the scripture is that Joseph is never seen as making the move to leave Nazareth. In fact, just the opposite. Maybe, as I said earlier, in reality, they had truly no idea what was happening to them. They had no concept Maybe, as we see so often in the scripture, they were really like the apostles who never really grasped what was happening before them and the Lord Jesus the entirety of his life on earth. They didn't have the big picture. They just had the pieces, just the pieces. So God does something unexpected. He uses the power of his divine providence to so order every detail of ancient history that he incorporates the organizing genius of the ancient world to arrange the details for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus ordered a census that every man must return to the city from which his family originated in order to be registered. And Joseph belonged to the line of David. Therefore, he had to go to David's city, the city of Bethlehem. He could not avoid the demand of Rome. The census compelled him into action. Do you understand? Neither Caesar Augustus or Herod would have fathomed that the census that was being decreed in an attempt to get greater control over the earthly kingdom would have been the very means that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would ensure that his Christ would be born exactly where he needed to be born according to prophecy that was uttered 750 years before. Unbeknownst to him... The selfish actions of a pagan king was taken and wovenly perfect into the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. And so, unexpected as it was, a decree was uttered forth, and Joseph brought his precious cargo to Bethlehem just in the nick of time, and Jesus was born. One of the most gripping aspects of Joseph's life is recorded for us by Luke just after the boy Jesus travels with his parents up to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. And I say it's gripping because after this point, Joseph never is seen again in the gospel narratives. After this episode, he disappears from Holy Scripture. His name will appear again, specifically twice in the Gospel of John, where those who were condemning Jesus would remind the crowds that this man was indeed the son of Joseph the carpenter who came from Nazareth. But the last time we actually hear of him appearing physically in a scene is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 41 through 51, when Jesus had departed from the caravan of his family and had insisted to return to Jerusalem so that he might meet with the teachers of the law and was asking them questions. And if you're there, once his parents finally realized he was gone, Mary speaks to Jesus, verse 48, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. What it tells us is that Mary clearly didn't hesitate to understand her son's relationship with her husband, Joseph, as being one of his father. 
And so it tells us that Jesus himself understood that Joseph to be his father as well. And yet, what's interesting here is that our Lord uses this scene with his parents to utter the exact same word, father. And he plays off of it to tell his mother in contrast, why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? In the same way that Jesus began to distance himself from Mary and John too, when he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? He also here is beginning to differentiate between his earthly father, Joseph, and his heavenly father from above. Jesus begins the distancing with his father very early. Perhaps he's preparing himself for the fact that Joseph will die soon. Perhaps he's preparing us to see that he would need to begin to depend on his heavenly father sooner than maybe we had anticipated. In any case, the mystery surrounding Joseph begins. Someone once wrote this. Whenever the bright blue nails would drop down on the floor of his carpenter shop, Joseph, prince of carpenter men, would stoop to gather them up again. And he feared for two little sandals sweet, And very easy to pierce they were as they patterned over the lumber there and rode on two little sacred feet. But alas, on a hill between earth and heaven, one day two nails and a cross were driven and fastened it firm to the sacred feet where once rode two little sandals sweet. And Christ and his mother looked off in death afar to the valley of Nazareth where the sharpenter's cart was spread with dust and the little blue nails all packed in rust, slept in a box on the windowsill, and Joseph lay sleeping under the hill. There's a man who, when he was with his son, prevented all the nails to fall on his little tiny feet to not hurt him, which were ironic because those very nails were also used to pierce him. And by the time it happened, the father was gone. He is the forgotten man of Christmas for sure. But he left us with only one man to remember, the only one we truly must remember, his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the providential intertwinings of history allowing us to not read our scriptures too quickly, to not allow ourselves to assume that we've heard the story many, many times, and yet to hasten so much so that we don't understand what happens between words and sentences with silences. Thank you for the contemplation of these verses and of this man, Joseph, who never speaks but who acts accordingly in his most godly way, according through both dreams and providence to fulfill your will. And Father, I just pray for every man and woman here, especially the men, the future husbands, the husbands that are, that we don't know how life is going to unfold. We don't know your providential episodes that are about to descend upon us. But we can be like Joseph. We can believe the best. We can study the scriptures to see if these things are true. We can 
maybe not be men of much talk, but men of great action, and that we trust you, that we trust you in things that we do not understand. Though we may not comprehend them, we believe them, and this is the lesson of Joseph. Uh, Put that to our understanding. Bless our hearts for all of us who need so much to understand now life doesn't always work out clearly, but we can trust the one who does all of the workings, who is you. Thank you, Lord. Bless this teaching in Christ's name. Amen.